So Richard, how do you describe how do we fix it? Serious. Playful. Open-minded. Argumentative. Liberal-leaning. Libertarian. Oh, we don't always have the same politics. But we do agree on this. For every problem, there ought to be a solution. A smart solution. We talk solutions on how do we fix it. With Jim Meggs. And Richard Davies. How do we fix it? This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kara Ong-Whaley, Associate Director at JMU Civic. This is Abe Goldberg, Director of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement and faculty member in the Department of Political Science here at James Madison University. I am Angelina Clapp, the Democracy Program Fellow at JMU Civic. In this episode, we're delighted to talk with Walter Schaub, an attorney who served as the Director of the United States Office of Government Ethics from 2013 to 2017. He earned his Bachelor's in History from James Madison University and a Law Degree from American University. In his current role, he leads the Ethics and Accountability Initiative at the Project on Government Oversight. Enjoy the episode! Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Um, you've said that it's important for government officials to remember that public service is a public trust and they're serving the people. We're in a historical and political moment of low public trust in government. And while blind trust is not a good thing, the lack of trust in government can make it difficult to address pressing public challenges, such as getting folks vaccinated or believing election results, just to name a few. What can elected leaders and public officials do to address distrust in government, especially when distrust is very warranted by traditionally underrepresented, marginalized, and minoritized groups? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, That's a really good question. I think for the length of time that I was at OGE, our unofficial motto was that we were trying to rebuild public trust. And The Office of Government Ethics, where I worked, was a creation of the uh, Watergate era, where in the aftermath, Congress tried to implement a number of measures to restore public trust in government. And I think that we're at an even more challenging period of time right now because you have very powerful forces consciously trying to undermine that trust both internally and externally to the U.S. We've got Russia, for instance, launching a disinformation campaign that's focused on dividing us, and they don't even have a specific objective. The objective is to make us angry at each other and not trust each other, and so it's just a chaos bomb they try to throw into the equation, and they're very good at it. But internally, obviously, we have people spreading the big lie, as they call it, that the last election was somehow stolen when there's absolutely zero evidence of that and significant evidence to the contrary. And in that environment, it's always going to be hard to restore public trust because you have people actively trying to undermine it. And I think when it comes to elected officials, they're very deliberate about what they're doing. Some of them are actively trying to undermine public trust, and some of them are actively trying to build it. You know, the best you can hope for is that the public will be questioning uh, things they're being told and seeking out information themselves. But when it comes to the elected officials, I think that they'll be hard to persuade to take a different course of action. We just saw this week Liz Cheney um, with very solid conservative credentials, certainly more conservative than the person who's replacing her, ousted for challenging President Trump's big lie. Um, And so this is a very deliberate effort. I think, however, there are things that both um, career government officials and the public can do. And I think it's very important for career government officials to be mindful at all times. And these are the folks that are below the political level, the folks that carry over from one administration to the next, that everything they do reflects on the government and it impacts the public trust. 
And they may think, oh, well, I'm just a small background figure. It doesn't matter, but it always matters. And we had a vivid case this week where a judge, um, Amy Berman Jackson, found that two career government attorneys at the Department of Justice uh, misled her in affidavits when they said that a particular memo that was sent to Bill Barr was sent before he made a decision whether or not to prosecute President Trump. And the judge demanded that the Justice Department show them the memo, and they fought her and said, you have no business looking at this, you should take our word for it. The government's entitled to a presumption of regularity, meaning that you assume that their motives are good and their actions are are consistent with procedures. Well, when she got the memo, because she demanded they release it anyways, she said nobody could read this memo and not realize the decision had already been made. It was very clear in the memo that the decision was already made. And yet these two attorneys signed affidavits saying the decision had not been made before we sent this memo. And they signed it, I swear, under penalties of perjury that these are true statements. And I guess maybe they hoped the judge would never see the document they were lying about. Um, So I think that it's incumbent on career officials not to get sucked into the chaos of political appointees and remember that they're there to uphold the law and um, remember always that it's the public they're serving. And I think for the public, the most important thing we have to do is get engaged in the work of our democracy. I think too many of us uh, we're lulled into a false sense of security, thinking that democracy's institutions were strong enough to withstand any assault. And they clearly are not. And they clearly need us actively seeking information from multiple sources and challenging government officials who don't tell us the truth. So I guess that's not a very optimistic perspective when it comes to elected officials, but I do believe uh, career officials and um, uh, the public are not helpless. Thank you for that response. Um, Mr. Schaub, you wrote in the Washington Post about how President Biden has not delivered on his campaign promise of wide-scale ethics reform within the government which was seen as a direct response to the ethics violation committed by the Trump administration over the past four years. What should the administration do to create long-lasting ethics reform within government? And considering the fact that the executive branch is inherently impermanent, what should Congress do to strengthen ethics? That's great. Um, You know, it's interesting. I I took some heat on social media for that op-ed, and I knew I would when I wrote it, because so many people said, well, he's new in the job, and he's got a lot to do, and we're in the middle of a pandemic. And my response to that, of course, and I tried to address that preemptively in the article, is that, um, sure, it's not fair that he has to deal with multiple things at once, but the reality is that if he has any ambition of getting any of the reforms he promised through Congress, he's got to do it while he's got people who are willing to work with him in Congress in charge. And, you know, I'm determined to stay nonpartisan in this, so I'm not trying to suggest that one side or the other should be in control of Congress. But strategically and realistically, if he has ambitions of reforms, he's only going to get those through uh, during the period of time that that he's got people supportive of his his bills. And his proposals talked extensively about reforms that could only be done through legislation. And he used terms like, I will enact. Well, of course, implicit in that is, I will enact as soon as Congress passes uh, certain proposals. And um, the truth is, you know, Congress could change hands in 2022. In fact, at least one, if not both chambers, are very likely to do that. Um, And, you know, maybe he will be better by then at persuading people across the aisle to support his proposals. But right now, the Congress seems so divided that any thought that he's going to persuade people um, from the opposite party to go along with him seems fairly far-fetched. 
And so he has to work backwards from, well, I've only got until this deadline to get these laws passed. And the reality is that you don't show up at Congress with a written bill that you wrote overnight and you say, let's pass this. And it flies through committee next week and then flies through the full House and then the full Senate. Uh, The reality is that Congress seems to move at a glacial pace and it takes months and months and months Uh, sometimes years, to build momentum for reforms. Um, So he's already running out of time. And there's a bill right now, the uh, H.R. 1, the For the People Act, uh, which passed the House, and its companion bill in the Senate is called S1. And um, this has a number of reforms, but it came from other sectors of his party. uh, And it's viewed more as a bill by people in Congress, the White House has not really taken it on as their own bill. And the problem is this bill has already passed one chamber of Congress. It only has to pass one more in order to become law. Um, But the administration is not spending any political capital on getting this through. They've made a few vague statements about we support H.R. 1 or we hope the Senate passes it. But the reality is that there's a filibuster mechanism that will cause it to die in the Senate unless they either repeal, you know, get rid of the filibuster or change the way it works. There's zero chance they'll get rid of the filibuster. There are two members of Congress who are very prominently opposed to it. Quietly, there are about as many as almost a half dozen others who would not vote for getting rid of it, but they've managed to stay behind the scenes because the other two are taking the hit. People are upset with those two, but the reality is there are at least half a dozen and maybe more people on his own side who won't support repealing the filibuster, but they could rein it in and they could turn it into a a talking filibuster where you have to do what Jimmy Stewart did and Mr. Smith goes to Washington and talk until you collapse and then your filibuster ends. Um, And so we can turn this into an athletic event that these folks um, can only endure for so long. Um, The White House has not been out there championing that and, and demanding that and putting pressure on members of Congress to do that. And they haven't been out there building public support for H.R. 1. And and fine, if they don't like H.R. 1, okay, but give us something else. And they haven't given anything else either. Now, I get that they probably don't want to propose anything until H.R. 1 passes or dies, but that thing's not moving all that fast. And they are running out of time, so they either need to get with the program on H.R. 1 or get some proposals of their own going And that isn't happening, and we're running out of time. Um, And the problem is he could have, theoretically, the best, most ethical administration in the world. Let's say it's perfect and they never have a single violation, which is impossible. No administration has. But for, for this fantasy hypothetical, let's say they lead a perfect administration. All of that ends when he leaves. Nothing he has done will carry forward into the next administration. So unless Congress passes laws, we are no more protected against corruption than we were this time last year. I don't know if you've taught courses or guest lectured in presidential leadership classes before, but so much of your response taps right into that literature about the the power to persuade, right? Like when we think about what presidential power is, the, 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 the power to persuade others to do what you want them to do, given the checks and balances uh, of our system, but then also about how how really so many presidents are going to have their best bet for broad reform towards the very beginning of their administration, um, which requires, as you said, that expenditure of of political capital. So it's really just textbook presidential leadership that um, that you're referring to here. That 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 you're saying that um, that the president has not been doing. And 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 the concern, I guess, is that he would run out of time um, if he decides to take it on longer in his administration. Maybe he does lose Congress, or maybe he just spends his political capital in other ways, and we can predict that, you know, as with most presidents, they tend to lose capital throughout the course of their term. 
That's right. And it comes at a cost. I mean, when we talk about spending political capital, you really are spending something. You you lose other opportunities because you disaffect people who don't agree with you on this, or you only have a certain bandwidth for spreading your message and advocating for something. Um, and, and But it's important that they do that because, you know, we refer to the bully pulpit. The president has leverage that no one else in the government has. You have over 400 members of the House and over, um, you, you know, you've got a 100 members of the Senate and um, no one of them can speak for an entire branch of government. But the president can command media attention and can put public pressure on members of Congress who of his own party who won't support his proposals. Um, that then comes at a cost because it, your, your ratings, your, as Trump used to put it, or your, your polling numbers tend to go down. Um, but it's also true that at the beginning you have the most. And that's when President Obama got his Affordable Health Care Act passed early on. And then it cost him and he couldn't get some other things through. Um, the problem is I can't imagine what in the world this administration could think is more important than protecting us against the authoritarian and corrupt movement um, that they were elected to stop. And, um, you know, and, and Liz Cheney is spending political capital. It cost her her leadership position. Um, and whether one agrees with her political views or not, she didn't do this for free. She paid a price for standing up and saying the big lie is just that, a lie. Um, and I don't see this administration spending the political capital to make sure that we bolster democracy. Uh, and really, um, authoritarianism and corruption are linked inextricably. So fighting one is fighting the other. And if we don't get permanent government ethics reforms in place through legislation, um, all we've done is given ourselves a calm between storms for a few years, but uh, have done nothing to fortify the, the, the ramparts and the, and the barricades holding back authoritarianism. So continuing um, or circling back around to the For the People Act, the bill has multiple provisions in it that would change ethics rules for the legislative, judicial, and executive branches of the U.S. government. Can you share details regarding some of the changes and how they might make government more transparent and accountable? You know, I want to preface this by saying, frankly, I view H.R. 1 as a down payment. If Congress and, and the administration got together and passed H.R. 1, it still wouldn't go as far as we need to in terms of reforms. Um, so it's a down payment, but it's an important down payment. And right now, admittedly, the most important provisions of HR1 are not directly in the field of what we consider government ethics, although um, in a bigger picture of ethics in terms of what is a republic for, what is democracy, they are related, and that's why they're included in the same bill. But it's the voting rights provisions that we need to guard against the wave of what I view as resurgence of Jim Crow legislation, this effort to suppress votes that's sweeping the states and um, could destroy democracy in this country if it succeeds. Um, so admittedly, those are the most important provisions. But the ethics provisions in that bill are important, too. And because the voting rights provisions are so important, we don't often hear about the specific um, ethics provisions. But I'll, I'll run through a few of them. One of them would require presidential candidates to release 10 years of tax returns, which is something President Trump refused to do. And I think the problem with our current financial disclosure scheme, with which President Trump mostly complied, um, is that they don't require you to you to reveal the details of businesses you own. And so the uh, tax returns would provide us with some additional information about sources of, of income. The bill would also go further and say, if a president's going to keep a business um, like the kind that President Trump 
um, owned where, where he's the primary owner, um, the president would have to disclose the liabilities, assets, and top investors in the companies that he or she kept. And that's the critical information that our current disclosures don't provide and even tax returns won't provide. Uh, but with our structure of very secret, privately held companies, um, usually in the form of LLCs, but sometimes in the form of partnerships, we have no way of piercing um, the, 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 the veil that hides this information from us. And so the law would require a president to either divest assets or disclose that kind of information. It would also prevent the federal government from spending any tax dollars at a business controlled by the president, the vice president, a cabinet official, or their spouses. There's a law that currently bans members of Congress from holding contracts with the federal government. H.R. 1 would extend that ban to presidents and vice presidents. So you wouldn't have the spectacle of President Trump, for instance, owning uh, a lease of a government building, the old post office pavilion for his hotel. It would ban the president's appointees from working on any matter in which the president, vice president, or their families are parties. And in the last administration, that would have meant that Rod Rosenstein and Bill Barr would have been prohibited from interfering with the Mueller investigation. And I think we may never know, and we're certainly not going to know soon, the extent to which Mueller's wings may have been clipped by Rosenstein's oversight of his investigation. We certainly know that Bill Barr issued a deceptive summary of that investigation that took the gas out of the public response to it um, because it had a three-week head start to permeate the media before the actual report was released and revealed that Barr had lied to us. Um, it would authorize the Office of Government Ethics to conduct investigations, which is something I was unable to do when I led the Office of Government Ethics. That body is more for advice than for investigation and has no current role in enforcement. So this would give the ethics program some teeth and it would give OGE subpoena power. Now, I would prefer to see a special investigative office like a special inspector general separate from OGE have that investigative authority so that people will still come to OGE for advice. Nobody goes to the policeman for advice and says, I'm thinking about doing this. Would it be corrupt if I do it? And then you've drawn the attention of the police. Um, so I'd rather have that investigative authority separate from OGE, but nobody is supporting that right now. And I would rather have OGE have investigative authority than have no one have it, because currently we have no way to investigate ethics violations. It would also let um, the Office of Government Ethics overrule ethics officials, including White House officials, who approve ethics waivers inappropriately or let their agency's employees hold conflicting financial interests. Um, currently, OGE has limited influence over anyone other than a Senate, a presidential nominee for a Senate-confirmed position. OGE can withhold its approval of a financial disclosure from a presidential nominee for a Senate-confirmed position if they don't sign an ethics agreement promising to do certain things. And if OGE won't sign off on their disclosure, they won't get a, president, a, a Senate hearing for confirmation. Um, so they have leverage over Senate-confirmed nominees, but no one else. And so, for instance, OGE didn't really have the leverage to tell Jared Kushner or Ivanka Trump what they should be holding um, or, or other top White House appointees um, because they could just simply ignore OGE's advice. This would give OGE the tools to actually say, you have to sell these things and get rid of them. And it would protect the OGE director against retaliation by saying the director could only be fired for inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. Now, those are subjective, and, and it's not an ironclad defense because a president could just say, oh, this person's inefficient, so I'm firing them. But at least it would be a standard that um, Congress could use as a yardstick and say, you don't have total discretion to just fire this person. 
uh, and that could lead to hearings theoretically. I would prefer to go further, for instance, and say that either the director of OGE or any inspector general could file a lawsuit if they're fired and force the government to prove that the standard for firing them has been met. This bill doesn't go quite that far, and so that's why I say H.R. 1 is a down payment. It would also authorize OGE to communicate directly with Congress, which is something I couldn't do when I was leading that office. I was allowed to respond to questions that they submitted, but I was actually not allowed to communicate directly with them, which made it very hard to sound the alarm and actually forced me to have to make a lot of public noise, just you know, objecting to things publicly rather than trying to handle them um, more efficiently by going straight to Congress. It requires incoming officials to recuse from any particular matter affecting the financial interests of a former client. Now, that's a legal term of art, particular matter, but what it actually means is you couldn't work on anything affecting the industry. And so if you used to represent um, electric electricity generating companies and you went into the EPA to regulate the air pollution that electricity generating companies produce, well, this prohibition in HR1 would prevent you from taking that job. You couldn't go from being a lawyer for these companies to being a regulator of those companies, at least not for two years. You'd have to do some other job in the government for two years to have a bit of a cooling off period. Um, and we actually had a scandal in the last administration where somebody came from a major law firm where they represented those type of companies. And in the summer, was sitting on one side of a table meeting with EPA officials on behalf of the companies. And by December, was sitting on the EPA side of the table meeting with former clients. Um, this would prevent that from happening, at least for two years. It would require the government to set up a database or ethics record so the public could see all the waivers that people get. And we currently can see some, but not all. And we need more information to know how the government's applying um, the rules. It would also um, lengthen the cooling off period for people who leave government from senior positions, prohibiting them to communicate with their former agency for two years instead of the current one year. And when I left the Office of Government Ethics, I had signed the Obama Ethics Pledge that expanded that prohibition to two years. Uh, and President Trump had repealed that executive order. But I honored it because I felt I had given my promise to a president of the United States. And so I didn't communicate with anybody in my agency for two years, even though I was allowed to after one year. And I really felt... Um, that that second year was crucial in reducing any potential influence over that agency. I still uh, think that there was a lot of loyalty and, and, and affiliation that persisted for a year. But after two years, people start forgetting you. <laughs> and so I, I think that extra year does make a difference. Um, there are a number of other small provisions that make technical tweaks to strengthen things and, and slow the revolving door. I'll just skip really quickly to the other two branches. It would require the Supreme Court to adopt a code of ethics. And what's shocking is that there is a code of ethics for judges, but the Supreme Court has exempted it from it, themselves from it. And there's no rules on Supreme Court justices. Uh, and we currently have a recent appointee to the bench um, hawking a book that she wrote about her own life and, and judicial views. And she's not alone. Appointees um, from presidents of both parties have sat on that bench and have sold books. And Taking a government position shouldn't be a way to make millions of dollars by trading on your influence. And, and if you're a Supreme Court judge, it's especially offensive if you're writing about jurisprudence as opposed to just your biography. But even a biography, you're going to work in some of your views. And anybody who litigates is going to feel like they need to buy that book to know how the court is going to rule on cases that could ultimately wind up before it. Uh, so I'd like to see the Supreme Court do that. Sadly, um, 
Justice Roberts has hinted that he thinks that it would be unethical, uh, in a sense. Uh, he thinks it would be unconstitutional for the Supreme Court to be told by Congress to have a code of ethics. And I think my response to that is, if you really believe that, then why haven't you just adopted one on your own? Obviously, you're not behaving like a grown-up and subjecting yourself to any rules, so somebody's going to have to do that for you. And then finally, um, Congress takes a little bit of a step. It, it has two provisions that would apply to it. One is really weak, and it's sad to see, but Congress just never likes to impose rules on itself. And it says that it would bar a member of Congress from working on legislation in which they have a conflict of interest, but only if a primary purpose of the legislation is intended to affect them or their spouses individually or as part of a very small group of individuals. So that's pretty weak tea and, and fairly disappointing. But it does have a better provision that says that it would ban members of Congress from sitting on for-profit corporate boards. And it's just shocking to know that you can be a member of Congress and sit on Exxon or Coca-Cola's board. And um, how they haven't eliminated that, I can't understand. So we really need HR1 to pass, if only to stop members of Congress from sitting on corporate boards. You'll have to forgive me if I'm not remembering this correctly, but was there a story that broke about a month after we were quarantined with COVID-19 where members of Congress um, had essentially dumped stocks with insider information on COVID-19 uh, to save themselves money. And again, I, I think, I don't have the article in front of me, I think it was leaders from both parties. Is is that something that, that you've addressed? Is that addressed in this bill or is that a violation of a, of a current? That came up last year in the case of Kelly Leffler and Richard Burr, both senators, um, who had suddenly um, dumped a bunch of stocks around the time that they got a briefing um, from administration officials warning them about the magnitude of what was coming with this pandemic before the public knew. Um, in Kelly Leffler's case, um, an investigation was started and then dropped because they felt there was sufficient evidence that she had not directed the purchases. Um, in Richard Burr's case, I think the questions have sort of persisted and haunted him a little, and I haven't looked recently to see if there was a resolution to that or not, but um, but that one was a little more problematic. And the concern is insider trading, which is illegal for members of Congress, um, and and that's why it was potentially very serious. I think the bigger issue is, um, even if these two are completely innocent, we wouldn't have to worry about this if members of Congress were prohibited from buying or selling stocks. And I know that, um, so, so both Mitt Romney and Abigail Spanberger have submitted bills that would require members of Congress to put um any holdings in a blind trust, um, any stocks in a blind trust, so that a blind trustee would do the buying and selling. Uh, that, I think, solves a lot of the problem uh, because then there's going to be no danger that a member of Congress is going to be buying or selling based on insider knowledge since they're not allowed to communicate with the blind trustee. And so um, even if they learn something that could be helpful, um, any purchases or sales will be done by somebody who doesn't have that information. Now, the downside is that uh, blind trusts in the legislative branch aren't really blind. Um, and that's because if you put stocks in a blind trust, you know what you put in it. And the law requires the trustee to send you a letter when they've sold off the asset. So if you haven't gotten that letter, you know you still have it and it could still influence your decisions. So if somebody winds up putting stocks instead of cash in the blind trust, they will still potentially have conflicts of interest. But even in that case, 
these bills would at least prevent them from trading on insider knowledge. And so I'm very supportive of these bills going through because that solves one of the two problems. In the executive branch, by the way, you can't put um, stocks and other potentially conflicting assets in a blind trust because unlike members of Congress, there's a criminal conflict of interest statute that applies to executive branch officials. And if they put something in a blind trust and knew what it was and still hadn't received that letter from the trustee saying it would be sold off, they would still have a conflict of interest. Uh, so the blind trust program in the executive branch is stronger than in the legislative branch. Legislators are exempted from the conflict of interest statute because they write the rules. And I guess it's good to be the king because they've decided the rules shouldn't apply to them. Um, on the other hand, the blind trust program in the executive branch is so strict and so expensive to do that there have been no blind trusts set up in the executive branch since 2006. Uh, so clearly that program isn't currently working. Um, but anyways, I think that the pending bills would go a long way toward preventing insider trading by members of Congress. And that too is a separate bill that's not included in HR1, which again is why I say HR1 is a down payment. It's not the end-all be-all. Thank you so much. As you were talking, I couldn't help but think back to Federalist 51 and this notion that Madison have of how do you get government <laughs> to control itself, right? And and some of these are, you know, what you're what you've just gone through are really, you know, some of the mechanisms that were lacking in order to have um, greater accountability um, within government. And so switching gears from from ethics to and and OEG to OIG, the offices of inspector generals, um, you know they they serve as as independent watchdogs within federal agencies. Um, the project on government o oversight, where you now work, has has a tracker for vacancies, um, and and there's a, a large number of inspector general vacancies in various agencies, including some that have some vacancies that have existed since 2014. Um, in the Department of Defense, Department of State, Central Intelligence a Agency, Department of Treasury, Department of Education, Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Labor, USAID, and the Election Assistance Commission. So all the biggies, right? <laughs> these aren't like small agencies that are that are missing key these key positions. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what these vacancies portend for government accountability and oversight and what the implications are for democracy in having uh, a lack of oversight and accountability. Yeah. So um, inspector generals are really the public's eyes and ears inside the government. They have access to things we can't get and they function independently of agency management. And so they're able to come in and really give an objective look at the things an agency is doing. They do investigations and audits. So they, they look for wrongdoing, but they also look for inefficiency and incompetence and, and anything else that can go wrong. Um, so they're incredibly important. Like anyone else, they're human beings, and so some are better than others. Um, but as an institution, they've been very successful, and they recover billions of lost dollars every year, uh, clearly paying for themselves as an institution. They, they, they save the government more money than they cost, and they bolster public confidence by rooting out wrongdoers. Um, the, the problem with filling vacancies has predated even the last administration. We've got all these vacancies, but it's not strictly a Trump problem. The prior administration, the Obama administration, was often criticized for not uh, filling IG positions. Looking back, I sometimes speculate that that may have been a matter of strategy because they knew their opponents on the Hill wanted IGs and they weren't willing to nominate them until they got some of the ones they wanted through that were being blocked. Um, that bothers me, even though it's at least an explanation, if it's true, because these positions need to be filled. We need that objective uh, look. And so a lot of groups, including the one I work for, are pushing 
um, the current administration to finally fill all these vacancies. Now, some people may say, well, what difference does it make because they'll be an acting official anyways? Whoever's the highest career official may take over and run the place. Um, first of all, that's not always true. In the last administration, um, President Trump pushed out an acting inspector general at the Defense Department and assigned the EPA IG to become the IG for both the Defense Department and EPA. Any one of those jobs is potentially overwhelming. Having someone in two jobs, um, it's an impossible scenario, and it raises questions about whether you've cherry-picked that IG to come over and do it because you know that IG is a loyalist and won't do objective investigations, and that's concerning too. Um, so I, I think it's incredibly important that they be filled. I also think it's incredibly important that they be filled with people who have a reputation for not being political. And to that end, there's a Council on Inspectors General for Integrity and Efficiency, SIGI, set up by statute that's a board of all the IGs, and they come together and they work together to develop skills and processes and, and, and figure out solutions that they could all apply or that they need help from Congress or the administration to apply. That's the body that should be recommending inspectors general to the White House. The White House should ask them, who do you think would be a good inspector general for this job? Give me, you know, half a dozen recommendations and we'll pick one from that list, but give us several recommendations. I don't think that a White House should go off and just pick who they want for a job like that. I think they need input from the experts. Um, and I'm and I'm very opposed to presidents firing inspectors general. We saw that in the last administration where President Trump fired a couple inspectors general, clearly in retaliation for doing their jobs, um, and uh, replaced at least one um, acting inspector general for doing his job. And that undermines not only those IG offices, but other IG offices, because it tempts inspectors general to pull their punches to avoid getting fired and think, well, we'll just live another day. And in fact, there's evidence that the Department of Homeland Security inspector general was suppressing investigations that would embarrass President Trump. And so even though I'm opposed to firing inspectors general generally, I think this administration should fire a few from the last administration, not all, because I think that would just be completely partisan. But I think there are a few, including uh, the DHS inspector general, who should be fired for their partisanship um, and replaced with recommend people recommended by SIGI. Uh, but except for those few, I don't think that others should be fired just because they were appointed by a prior president. Um, and so I think, I think the inspectors general need more protection as well. When we saw the president fired the inspector general for the intelligence community, it was because he fulfilled the legal requirement to notify Congress when a whistleblower alerted him to wrongdoing by the president that led to the president's impeachment. And he was fired in retaliation for that. I think a statute needs to lay out the for-cause standard that um, a, an inspector general can only be fired for certain specified reasons. And then I think the inspector general should be authorized to file a lawsuit and the government should have to prove, bear the burden of proof uh, that the standard was met. And I also think that because the statute says the president has to give Congress 30 days notice before firing an inspector general, the government should be limited in its defense to presenting only whatever evidence it showed Congress. Um, and so if the president sends a letter like the last one did saying, I fired him because I lost confidence in him, but offered no evidence and no documents or no explanation, then the president should have to go into court and say, well, I'm not permitted to submit any evidence, but I lost confidence in him. And then the IG will clearly win and be reinstated. That would force presidents 
to reveal to Congress their true reasons for firing somebody and evidence up front during the 30-day notice period when Congress is supposed to have a chance to be able to create enough pressure to stop that firing. And it would give the inspector general fair notice of the evidence against him or her so they could go into court and rebut that evidence or at least um, force the government to try to prove the evidence is true. Um, without that, I think we leave inspectors general vulnerable to retaliation. I'd like to see the same standard apply to the director of office of government ethics. And there's an agency called the Office of Special Counsel, which is not related to Mueller. It's a standalone agency um, that investigates whistleblower retaliation claims and Hatch Act violations. And the Hatch Act, as many people learned the hard way in the last administration, is the law that prohibits misusing your government position to influence an election. Um, so I'd like to see all of those watchdogs protected with both a legal standard for how they can be fired and a right to file a lawsuit if they do get fired. I think you've just inspired several dissertation <laughs> <laughs> topics. <laughs> you tweeted on April 23rd, too many people think the threat to the republic has subsided. That's what keeps me up at night. How do you characterize the nature and extent of threats to American democracy and what should individuals do to be informed, effective, and active participants in democracy? I personally think there's an authoritarian movement in this country that isn't isolated to this country. We're seeing similar things in various stages of development across the Western world. We're seeing a very scary um, rise of it in France. It hasn't taken hold yet, but it's trying. We're seeing in Poland and Hungary, it's really gotten its hooks into government and is creating a scary situation reminiscent of the 20th century. Um, and we're seeing similar movements all over the West. And uh, we're no exception to that. And I think it's important to remember that it's not happening in a vacuum, that it's happening across the West. It's being inspired uh, actively by Russia and maybe to a lesser extent by China. The, these are countries that feel they will fare better um, in a world in which all the governments are authoritarian like theirs and they don't face critics or rivals from uh, the free world. And in Russia's case, unlike China, Russia knows that it can never lift itself up um, to a level um, where economically or militarily it's comparable to the United States. And so what it wants to do is bring the United States down. Uh, and that may be why its efforts are more dramatic and more fervent um, and open than China's, because China is a peer nation and has uh, a more powerful military than we have and a uh, growing economy. And so it's similar, it's situated differently than Russia, which has nothing to lose and everything to gain by just throwing chaos bombs at us. Um, internally to the U S it's terrifying that we have members of Congress um, supporting the big lie and even to the extent of ousting one of their most loyal party members from a, a leadership position because she wouldn't back this big lie. And this big lie is what fueled the insurrection on January 6th. But now you even have members of Congress who are claiming there was no insurrection as though we've all imagined what happened on January 6th and a, a violent gang didn't come in and murder a police officer inside the Capitol and run around screaming that they should hang Mike Pence. Um, this is scary stuff and it's being coupled by an even more effective effort at voter suppression once you manage to suppress the votes of people that you've targeted for uh, race or economics or anything else, um, we don't have a truly representative country. And one could argue we never have had a truly representative country, but we're moving in a direction away from achieving that goal if we're throwing up barriers to people voting. And I fear 
that um, the lesson we learned in the last four years is that, you know, people talk about how there were all these norms that fell when a president just ignored them. And so they say what we need is laws instead of norms. I don't necessarily share that view. I think we need both laws and norms because the no- the laws are just as weak as the norms if there's no one willing to enforce them. You you had a case where Robert Mueller concluded an investigation and said if I could have said that the if I had if I had confidence that the president had not committed obstruction of justice, I would say so. He wrote that in his report, but he says, you have a policy that says I can't prosecute the president, and it would be unfair to say that he committed a crime without being able to prosecute him because he wouldn't have a forum in which to defend himself, which would be the criminal court in which he'd be prosecuted. (laughs) So he says, I can't claim that he violated it because it would be unfair to him if I if I did that without prosecuting him and giving him a chance to defend himself, but I won't say he didn't do it. And if I didn't think he did it, I would say he didn't do it. So that's like as clear as, you know, it's muddled. But what he's saying is he thinks the man was guilty. You similarly had these Hatch Act violations that were repeatedly committed by officials, including Kellyanne Conway, the president's senior counselor, who began openly violating it and at the end sort of thumbing her nose at the um, Office of Special Counsel that that investigates Hatch Act violations. In fact, my favorite souvenir of the Trump era is this ridiculous two-second video clip where she's talking to the press and realizes she's treading into Hatch Act territory. So she stops, looks at the camera and says, Walter Schaub, calm down, and then continues. <laughs> and that was, or, or she said to somebody, um, let me know when they come to take me away to Hatch Act jail or whatever. And she just mocked the law. Um, so there's, the, the problem is when you have an authoritarian government, um, it, and it won't enforce the laws against itself. There's no one to enforce it. Uh, another example is that in April 2019, they fought, the House issued a subpoena to Don McGahn trying to get him to testify. Don McGahn was the, the former counsel to the president for Donald Trump, his, his first counsel to the president. And um, McGahn refused to testify. And so they took him to court. Well, the case wound its way up and down and up and down the courts. And now, two years later, everybody just kind of threw up their hands and McGahn agreed to a behind-closed-door deposition, um, which won't be as embarrassing to him because the same as the Mueller report was nearly 400 pages long and most of America didn't read it, most of America won't read the transcript of his deposition. And it won't have the power that deposing him in front of a camera would have had where people will watch video clips. So he managed to dodge accountability that way. Congress is probably satisfied that it got um, its hooks into him and and are going to be able to ask him questions. But what they didn't get and they didn't see through to the end was a court decision saying that they have a right to compel somebody to testify so that in the future, they don't have to litigate for two years to an inconclusive end. They'll be able to wave the decision around. And without that, we are now no closer to reining in the growing power of the presidency and restoring some balance where the legislative branch has some power. And that frankly is is very scary because it, it it means again that a president can violate lots of laws, a corrupt attorney general can choose not to prosecute or do anything, and Congress can't do anything about it because they can't haul a witness in to testify. Um, so that's why I think the threat remains. I also think that because HR1 and other laws have not been enacted, other bills have not been enacted to strengthen our defenses against authoritarian abuse, abuses by giving private individuals the right to sue or Congress a right to sue, um, 
over various violations, we're no better off than we were a year ago. And I, I think in some ways you have witting and unwitting um, participants in this growing trend of authoritarianism that that you've got this authoritarian movement that consciously wants to be authoritarian, but you also have a growth of the presidency that um, Arthur Schlesinger warned us about back in the 60s or 50s when he coined the phrase imperial presidency. And um, as further evidence of how both sides have been complicit in that, it was President Biden's Department of Justice that continued defending Don McGahn after the inauguration. And they're the ones who negotiated the settlement with the justice, I mean, with the legislative branch that McGahn would do this behind the scenes deposition. They didn't come in and say, we're going to restore the balance of power between branches. And we're going to ensure that Congress has its subpoenas honored because we're going to show up in court and say, as the Department of Justice, everything we've been saying to you for the past two years is wrong. The legislative branch is right. Your Honor, we'd like you to issue a decision saying that our our um, person here, Don McGahn, must come in and testify. Instead, the Justice Department, which is notoriously pro-executive branch power, and this administration, which comes from a long um, history of officials who have been inside Washington and many of whom have previously worked inside the executive branch, thought it made sense to resist this congressional subpoena, just as President Trump had done. And so when the guy who's elected to roll back um, the authoritarian excesses of the last administration defends it in court, um, that's cause for concern because it means th- both sides are to different degrees and very different degrees. I'm not trying to draw a false equivalency here. They are not equivalent, but it's just an example of the little ways in which every presidential administration has been jealous in guarding its authority and its power against legislative oversight. And that's, that's terrifying. So I, I think our country is in for a real reckoning. Um, And I only hope uh, democracy wins in this struggle. You've given us a segue to a question that we ask all of our guests. We've now had over 50 episodes of Democracy Matters, and we're so honored to have you join us um, in really what is a sobering account of of the current state of democracy and what could be to come. so with that, you know, we do ask, what would you do to strengthen our democracy? I think the most important thing in any republic is ensuring that we're electing leaders who represent all Americans and voter suppression is the greatest threat to that. So I think the very first thing I would focus on Uh, would be fighting this voter suppression legislation and making sure all Americans can vote. I would like to see an end to gerrymandering as well so that members of Congress don't live in jurisdictions, in districts, I mean, don't lead districts that look like a spleen or a human intestine. I mean, some of these shapes are ridiculous and are obvious that they're carving them out to to make sure a particular person retains office um and i frankly don't think we're ever going to be out of the woods until we stop treating corporations like humans and let them have all the benefits of citizenship by being able to support Um, candidates indirectly with ads as long as they don't coordinate with the candidate Um, and not coordinating sometimes seems like wink wink nudge nudge because you know they are coordinating Um, until we have those reforms I don't see how we can ever truly have government ethics I do think there's a lot we can do to improve the situation by requiring more government transparency. And 
internal to the executive branch, we need presidents to stop trying to expand or aggrandize, as they say, presidential power. Um, and that includes not defending uh, former presidential assistants who refuse to testify, like Don McGahn. Uh, there's the Office of Legal Counsel within the Justice Department that keeps issuing opinions that control the fate of what the Justice Department does and wind up affecting all of us. And they don't even release all of those opinions. Um, and I'm referring, for instance, to the opinion they issued that says a president can't be prosecuted. Well, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that. There's not even a statute that says that. The Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel just ginned that up with a very weak opinion. Um, what the public doesn't necessarily know is they have at least as many, if not more, secret opinions. and. When these opinions say the Justice Department or a federal agency can't do something or must do something, um, there's no one withstanding to challenge it. You can't go into court and sue and say this OLC opinion's wrong, uh, an agency should be able to do this or should not be able to do this. Um, one example of an opinion that was made public was an opinion by the head of OLC, the Office of Legal Counsel, Stephen Engel, that answered a question Bill Barr referred to him about the FDA. The FDA didn't refer to him, and so if you read between the lines, it's clear that the FDA and the Justice Department disagreed on something, and Bill Barr pulled out the trump card, no pun intended, um, and referred the matter to the Office of Legal Counsel the question was, can the FDA regulate death penalty drugs? And the, Stephen Engel wrote this opinion that the FDA cannot um, regulate death penalty drugs because by definition, these drugs are being misused to kill someone. <laughs> and <laughs> the whole opinion rests on the idea that misusing these drugs puts them out of the realm of FDA's um, regulation because they can't be made safe. Well, first of all, you're misusing the drugs, so that ought to be illegal. And second of all, um, there still is a concept of safety in terms of not causing inordinate pain. Um, and there's real concern that maybe these drugs are causing pain. But Bill Barr wanted to go on a killing spree at the end of the Trump administration, and he needed the FDA brushed out of the way. OLC issued this opinion, and even though they tell the court, we don't have to release our opinions in response to Freedom of Information Act requests because they're just advice and they're not binding on anyone, they told the FDA in the opinion, you may not regulate um, death penalty drugs. And internal to the executive branch, they run around telling government officials that OLC opinions are binding on them. One quick funny aside and an answer that's already gone on too long, I'm sorry, but um, I had an OLC attorney once tell me when I was in the government, our opinions are binding on you. We're like the Supreme Court for the executive branch. And I said, well, I thought the Supreme Court was the Supreme Court for the executive branch. Uh, but that's the arrogance and the, the firmness with which they tell you inside the government that their opinions are binding. But outside the government, they say to judges, oh, we're just issuing advice and nobody has to follow it. And because it's just advice, it's not releasable under the Freedom of Information Act. And judges have been buying that saying, oh, okay, well, if it's just advice, but it's not just advice. And in this case, it was particularly troubling because Congress has given FDA the authority to interpret the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, but OLC was usurping the power that Congress gave FDA and issued this decision. So all of that's a long-winded way of saying that um, this Office of Legal Counsel within the Justice Department in every administration has put all of its efforts into saying that presidents have more power than they otherwise would seem to have. And because most laws are carried out and enforced by the executive branch, no one can challenge them and they become effectively secret law when they're when they're issuing these opinions and not releasing them. 
So I think that one thing this administration and future administrations can do is actively work to weaken the presidency. And that's that's a tough thing to ask of them because you currently have, for instance, this administration is combating a pandemic and they feel they need all the tools and all the power they can get to save us from being killed by a pandemic. And so there's a natural tension in there. And unfortunately, um, the proclivity of every president will always be to expand their power. And until we find ways to get a congressional toehold into reigning in that power, we're going to have a problem. One thing, for instance, they could do with regard to subpoenas is issue a law saying um, the courts must give expedited consideration to subpoenas and so that we don't wait two years to only wind up at a settlement. You have to issue this decision as quick as possible and it has to jump ahead of every other case in your docket because it's an issue that goes straight to um, the balance of power in this republic. Um, so there are a number of things that even aside from from campaign and voter issues, Congress can do to sort of rein in the excesses of the executive branch to make it harder for an authoritarian who winds up in the White House from abusing power and shifting us away from being um, a free country. Um, for voters, I think the most important thing, and, and I don't mean voters, actually, I mean citizens. For citizens, the most important thing we can do is become active in government. And that doesn't just mean voting. I'm not advocating voting for any one party or any individual at all. I'm saying that democracy needs to be um, something we're all actively engaged in. We can't take for granted that we have democracy. And that means demanding that politicians of both parties, or if we have other parties um, gaining prominence, um, be accountable to us and be transparent and answer questions and um, and making sure that local processes for democracy are handled fairly at, at every level, from the federal down to your town or county um, or school board, whatever it means. Um, but I think that for too long, Americans have been lulled into a sense that democracy happens. And the reality is that democracy is the work of the people. Um, and we need to, to make it happen on a daily basis. Walter Schaub, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. Thanks for having me. Go Dukes. <laughs>